0: And welcome to Girls Gone Canon, episode 28, Sansa 8 in a Clash of Kings. I am one of your hosts, Chloe. You can find me on the internet as at Lisen Arbor on Twitter and of course on Tumblr.
1: And I'm another one of your hosts, Eliana. And you can find me on the Song of Ice and Fire subreddit as Glass Table Girl and on the Maester Monthly Podcast and as A on Twitter.
0: Hey, new book, new us.
1: New, <laughs> New girls. That's not Chloe. New book, new me. Who, who are you even? <laughs> I'm not Eliana. If you guys are tuned into any of our social media, you'll know
0: that Eliana and I spent some very quality time this weekend with each other. Or well, this week, I guess we should say with each other. I'm like weirded out. This event, the fire and blood event that George did for promotion in Jersey City was on a Monday so, and with Thanksgiving, my whole world is just upside down right now. It's Tuesday. I should still be it's at work.
1: It's Wednesday. Yeah, see, exactly. Oh, my God. Everything's turned around. I thought it was Sunday for five days. I'm remote today. And I thought, like, I missed a meeting for a moment. And then turns out, no, the meeting was canceled or moved because, yeah, it's a crazy week. So I think my boss called me
0: today and I was like, who are you? Who? Who?
1: Who? Who? Who?
0: Uh, Yeah, so we went to the Fire and Blood promotional event, the only one that George was doing at the Lowe's Theater in Jersey City, which was beautiful, absolutely gorgeous, golden encrusted and just amazing. And it was amazing. George was amazing. We figured we would tell you guys a little bit about who we saw and what we did while we were there, hooked up and hung out with the Nauticast guys, poor Quentin and Brandon B. Fish. They did a little meetup, so we let them do that and just came to it and took all their spotlight at that meetup.
1: <laughs> I mean, I showed up, like, very late, so you did it. You stole all the light.
0: That's true. That's what I thought. It's our meetup now. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. If you're in the Nauticast Facebook group, you'll know a big running joke is, why not make this a Girls Gone canon group, too? So we love the crossover. It was really exciting to meet a lot of the people Uh, We were at a bar called PJ Ryan's. Eliana did show up very late. She was very hungry. At one point when we were surrounded by about 15 people chitter-chattering about the books, uh, she texted me and asked, well, she texted the whole group saying, someone find out what the soup of the day was. So if that tells you anything about Eliana who showed up late as all get out.
1: Okay, in my defense, it was an endeavor. I'm going to regale you all with my Jersey trip. I went up on Sunday with Courtney Mazza from the Facebook group uh, and she also is, I think, an admin of the Game of Thrones Facebook group and so I stayed at her cousin's place where her cat, while I was sleeping, stole my hair ties and then, you know, What? After, you know, I woke up with the cat also like looking over me a few times. I'm like, alright well, hello creature. Um And then the next day, I had to do a lot of work, so I was just working. And then, turns out, while that was happening, Courtney's car was getting towed, so we had to go retrieve said car before we could even make it to the meetup, etc. It was a day.
0: It was a day. When Courtney always has things like this happen, I feel like, like, just things happen to her, right? Like, just just stuff. Just stuff. She'll be like, well, this just happened. And I'll be like, wow, when does it stop, girl? I feel bad for you. But what if
1: I'm cursed? What if, what, if yeah, what if I'm jinxing it? Yeah. What if I'm jinxing it because I feel like last time it was when we traveled. God, I'm
0: so glad I don't take you anywhere. I know, I'm a jinx. <laughs> I think you are. Well, we saw a lot of people, including Courtney and the boys from Madecass. We saw some of our friends over at the podcast Vassals of Kingsgrave, and we also saw some of the ladies from Fire and Lunch. Check them out. Uh, Mighty Isabel from Twitter and Reddit, and Joe Magician as well from Twitter and Reddit. And we also saw a good friend of ours, Anthony Pelliccio, and his brother, Michael. Some other friends of the podcast that we got to see, Chris, Meg, and her boyfriend, George. Some of our friends like Tracy from Winterfell Pod and Tanya from 1000 Eyes in One. We saw Don Willie from The Hypes Watch, got to hang out with him. I had a couple fights with him about Littlefinger. It's no big deal. And we saw Haley from The Manimals, Zach from Game of Owns, Rebecca, uh, Lady of Waves, and overall, it was just a nice time out. We ended up at having uh, a few of us stayed at a smaller Airbnb with just some good friends and some good alcohol. And then we had a very sloppy but fun live stream with a lot of the named suspects above.
1: Exactly. And I'm never going to rewatch this podcast.
0: Oh, never, never. I I'm was, never watching that.
1: I'm never watching it. If you If you need to know anything about this podcast, I mean, it was fun. A lot of people said some very smart things. There was a lot of discussion, of course, uh, about how excited we are for Fire and Blood and some teasers that you and – because you and Emmett had already had some time to peruse the books very, very quickly. We say sometime, but literally, like, so
0: we got in. We all waited in line for, like, probably 10 minutes. That line moved very quickly. It wasn't long, and it was fun. You know, the line wrapped around, though. We got over there. We started the meetup at 5.30, and we got over to line, like, at 6.50 probably, so – I think we got inside like 7.15, but it, it was fun. It was fun waiting outside and hanging out. We were all a little warm from some of the uh, the adult beverages we imbibed in. And afterwards, we got inside, uh, and immediately after getting our books, poor Quentin, Emmett, and I were like, Heads in books, nerds. He was reading Hour of the Wolf. I was reading Dance with Dragons. All you guys were all like, look at the pretty pictures. And me and Emmett were like, we're going for info. Like, we're over here texting you guys going, dude, skip to this page. You find out who kills so-and-so. And you guys are like, what the hell?
1: Like, what are you guys talking about? I know. I was like, did you make this up? Is this really in there? And it was really in there. And you're like, oh, shit. It's in there. And then the lights dimmed and George started talking and... Yeah, but, we put our
0: books away. We put our books away.
1: Yeah, you you uh, were able to find some things, and that got brought up on the live stream just just barely. And, uh, yeah, then the next morning, everyone was fine, and I was really hungover, and it was... You died. I was we, okay. That's not the worst I've ever been. I was surprised. No, you've been worse. Yeah. After
0: After we all heard George speak, we actually went back to that bar. I thought we were all going home to the Airbnb to get ready for the stream, but... And Jeff Burnham B. Fish was like, no, we're going to the bar. So we all walked back to the bar uh, and uh, we imbibed in a little bit more adult beverages. So by the time we got back to that Airbnb, which this live stream was supposed to start at 1030, probably 1035, 1045 when it started, we uh, we were ready to go. And it, it just kept happening during. I think I took control of the microphone at one point to pass it back and forth and moderate. And I took control of the chat just because someone had to. There was a lot of people in that small. That room was very small. That living room, it was very, it was small.
1: It was intimate.
0: It was very intimate. Well, yeah, Eliana drunkenly slinked herself along the couch like a cat. She was laying behind us. It was like, she was very small. She's very small.
1: The cat spirit uh, while I was sleeping. We did learn a few things. Not a lot. Uh, George didn't
0: answer a lot of questions. He answered probably about, what, five questions? I feel like some of them got a little drawn out as well. They were very cherry-picked questions as well.
1: And some of them uh, were things that had answers to it before, like I appreciated a lot hearing about George's love of Stanley but we did kind of get his, his homage to Stanley a few days before on his blog.
0: Yeah, I don't want to say it was disappointing. There were a lot of great moments. He's an amazing storyteller. I love hearing him speak, but It was disappointing. The pace, it felt like the questions were dragged out and it just, I did like uh, one story that I liked that he talked about was, of course, I know Joe Magician over uh, wrote on Watchers on the Wall today about it too, but it is my favorite. I talked about it on the live stream of House Brady's downfall. Mm -hmm. So Georgia's mom, her line, uh, her line of secession, her family was, their last name was Brady and they lived off of Lord Avenue. They had a house there. And eventually their finances kind of crumbled and some things changed. They had to sell that house. The dock that they had, they owned a dock that was the Brady dock, It got taken away from and sold off. So George joked about how when he was writing Game of Thrones, he had this idea far before about Daenerys and her brother Viserys and the downfall of House Brady and Lord Avenue. And. It really reminded me, the story was really kind of, it was a nice story just to hear him tell. I love hearing him tell stories. It reminds me of, I want to say, what is it, Viserys or Aegon Rhaenyra's son, who it kind of gave me those vibes because they swore to get, you know, get vengeance for their mother. And in turn, it also gave me Princess Diana vibes, weirdly enough. Uh, Her sons, yeah, her sons when she uh, had, you know, been basically pretty much set aside they swore they would get her her crown back. You know, they said, Mommy, we're going to get you your crown back. So I thought that was really cool. It just kind of reminded me a bit of Rhaenyra to draw it back into Fire and Blood. What did? Uh, what were your particular favorite parts of what George talked about?
1: I think that would probably be the same one for me in that, you know, he's talked about this history of his family before. But it was nice to hear him explicitly connected to Being an inspiration for Daenerys' storyline, I was also thinking something that I thought that was hilarious, was how George, you know, was talking about how his world was so small back then. He lived on this small area of town in Bayonne, New Jersey, and he would look out across, across the canal and he would look at Staten Island and be like looking at the twinkling lights of Staten Island and thinking of it as a place full of legend and myths and wonder. And he just kept that to himself. And it's Staten Island. But so there's that. <laughs> not, Dragonstone. No, not Dragonstone. Not it's not. I've been mulling that over. And especially because so much of George's childhood and that lost greatness is part of Daenerys' storyline. I was thinking about how, a few weeks ago, a Bookshelf Stud, a.k.a. Michael, over on Meester Monthly and on the subreddit, wrote about how The Great Gatsby is an American myth, or this American story that is being channeled through A Song of Ice and Fire, and George has talked explicitly about how much he loves the book The Great Gatsby. And then, I think a few weeks after that, or maybe a week after that or something, Elio from Westeros said in a quote, that for him, he thinks that the Red Door in Bravos is very much inspired by the Great Gatsby. And by that, he's talking about how the Red Door in Bravos is to Daenerys what the Green Light of the Great Gatsby is to Jay Gatsby, the character. And I think you can really see that, like in, in the Great Gatsby, Jay Gatsby's always looking across the river and he's looking at the Green Light. And I see that image when I think of George looking across the river at Staten Island. And so you have all these things from George's childhood being channeled into Daenerys.
0: I don't know. It was really illuminating. It was great to hear from him in his own words. And he did something I didn't love that happened. And I'm sure you could relate was Mm -hmm. the heartache that George brought us. Uh, Of course, the ultimate question, the penultimate question we all wait for. About T. Wow. Did happen early on. John Hodgman got that out of the way very early. And man, it it was a bummer because not because of what George said as far as progress. I don't care about that. George, baby, take your time. But it hurt to hear him say, and he did say this, that he feels as if he had failed because the show Um. got ahead of the books. And I mean, Brendan B. Fish just pointed this off this out on Twitter today. I mean, A Dance with Dragons, that's an 83,000 words, that is, per year. That took him, what, five years to write? Oh, sure. That's pretty lengthy. I mean, I just think people really disregard how expansive these books are, especially because if you buy them, you're more than likely getting the little paperback copy, which means it doesn't look big. That's a lot. That's a lot, a lot, a lot packed into one book, especially we have, what, dozens to almost hundreds of podcasts about Game of Thrones, and A Song of Ice and Fire available on the market, no series should be able to support that. That's a lot he's writing, so I just think it's so unfair for him to think to himself that he failed, but we're all hard on ourselves.
1: I think there's that. So of course he's getting a lot of criticism right now with social media, and that becomes a little more prominent, and I don't think that some of the negative reviews from actual professional reviewers and writers have helped. But this is an interesting context that I saw this morning. Adam Werthead over of Wurtzone who, you know, has is a friend of George, he's cited in A Dance with Dragons. He said that he feels that the vitriol and the criticism was actually much much more there was more Adam Whitehead of The Word Zone, and who's a friend of George, who's credited in A Dance with Dragons as helping out with the writing of it, said that there was actually more vitriol and criticism prior to the publishing of A Dance with Dragons than there was this time around. And I think he credits that to the fact that George had written that Dance would be out a year after Feast. But I think that people's expectations have been set now. They know that it's going to be, it could end up being longer, which it has. And it is what it is.
0: Yeah, it is what it is. And we're going to get it when we get it. I think that's yeah. what matters. But it was still disheartening just to hear him a little broken up about it, man. His voice took a little break there, right? Like, it was it was sad. It was a bummer.
1: I agree. And they started, they, they were ending the entire Q&A session kind of with this feeling of positivity. And I just, like, couldn't help thinking, at, and I kind of shouted this also at the end, you know, Without George, like we wouldn't be doing this podcast. You and I wouldn't yeah. be friends. Like for me, the uh, seeing George was really great, but I found the highlight personally for Monday night being like getting to see this community, getting to see all these people that I've met because of what George has made. And I just think that that's really awesome. And that, you know,
0: absolutely agreed. The absolutely real agreed.
1: A Song of Ice and Fire
0: are the friends we made along the along way. The way. <sighs> oh my God. You, you tried to say it so many times this weekend. I was so proud. Anyways. It's
1: true. <laughs> it's my words are wind.
0: Oh, my God, Eliana. Words are wind. And speaking of words, what have you gotten to read anything in the book so far? What do you like so far? I
1: haven't gotten to read anything in the book so far.
0: <laughs> okay, so Eliana has not gotten to read anything in the book so far. Uh, unfortunately, I cannot say the same. I could not keep my paws off of it. And something we're going to talk about in just a bit in our Dance of the Dragons episode coming to you guys end of the month here for all $5 plus patrons are a lot of further reveals on motivations of characters like Larry's the Clubfoot and how strong in the dance and uh, in the book. There's just a lot going on. I've made it all the way to Jaharis so far. I'm on the very beginning of Jaharis, so hopefully I can get some good reading in this week, but I think something I'm going to talk a lot about in this episode we're going to be doing is justice for Jahara Targaryen. I'm going, to bring, I'm going to bring justice for Jahara to, uh, to our podcast, Eliana.
1: I'm going to bring vengeance, justice. Fire and blood. Yeah, or hair net. We'll get to this.
0: Oh my god. Hey, we do have an email uh, of note to bring up from our good friend Warren. Do you want to read that for us?
1: Sure. It says, ladies, the one where Joffrey dumps her. During the chapter, Littlefinger, get a job, is appointed Lord Paramount of the Trident. Sansa considers this a hollow and unusual title given that the region is loyal to her grandfather and or brother. She ponders further that maybe that might change, becoming concerned for Rob's well-being, reassuring herself with thoughts of his valor on the field. Her initial thoughts prove horrifyingly right, though, and when you get here, I'd love to hear your take on this. I'm also impressed by the subtlety with which George displays Sansa's intelligence. I have to say my eyes are really opening this reread. This is an incredibly well-written and considered character, and I find myself looking for these little nuggets of extreme, calculated intelligence. In this instance, I'm not sure Tywin has fully developed his evil plot. Fuck the Lannisters, fuck them all. (laughs) <laughs> but Sansa is already putting the pieces together. Looking forward to a new episode very soon. Keep them coming, Warren. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Warren, he always makes our day. Uh, yeah, I'm excited to really jump into this episode to kind of square us into more of that. Uh, we're going to talk a lot, a lot about what he's talking about in this episode. So let's jump on into our lightning round. Eliana?
1: Daenerys 5. Daenerys flees the House of the Undying and Zaro's affections for her dragons. Later, she meets the best character in all of A Song of Ice and Fire, Strong Belwas. That's it. I'm sorry, no, there's actually more. In Esquire, Arsten White-speard, Whitebeard, whom st- we have never met before in our lives, save for her save life from a manticore. But back to Strong
0: Belwas. In Arya 10? Arya's new, 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 new job, she's really bad in regards as, like, turnover, right? She's working for Roose Bolton. She flees Harrenhal with her friends by the chapter's end by slitting the throat of a guard. This is also the chapter where the phrase get, quote-unquote, betrayed, so they change the tides with Roose Bolton. Also, it is the I am a dire wolf and done with wooden teeth chapter, which is one of my faves. I know our uh, listener Warren will like that one. It's probably one of his faves, too. I think it's really cool that these two chapters ramp up on the magic on the faceless men on the house of the undying. It reminds me of something George said on Monday. That might actually be my other kind of favorite thing where he talks about how, you know, uh, dragons are really difficult to put in story and magic is really difficult because if you have magic and you have dragons, why, why would there be armies? The armies wouldn't line up. They know they'd die. They just bloop magic, bloop magic. So he talks about how he handles that really carefully in the story. And I think Arya's chapters are a really great balance of
1: that. That's true. Um, Now that I think about it, with the exception of, of course, dragons or with the exception of, of course, dragons, a lot of the very, very big magic that we see in the books happened years before, right? From the Children of the mm-hmm. Forest, And they required like a huge, there was a huge price for them. There was a sacrifice of either like, m- of many lives in order to like do the hammer of the waters. And a lot of the magic that we see in the books is small and individual it's it's frightening but it's indiv- on that individual level yeah.
0: this brings us to sansa stark eight bend the knee or hear him roar good king joffrey hears petitions from those wishing to join his honorable and just cause sansa loses approximately 145 pounds of golden incest but she learns her torments aren't quite over as a ward of the crown Dantos gives Sansa a heirloom that, unbeknownst to her, has magic within it.
1: And that brings us to the chapter Lords and Ladies. Fill the throne room. And the fashion is on point. Cersei's wearing a queenly gown of Lannister colors.
0: Yeah, you can tell that she's feeling safe in her house colors after winning the battle, which is a total contrast against Tywin we'll talk about later. Her dress is prominently gold, which is possibly showing not only her Lannister wealth, but telling of the Tyrell connection to come and keeping that kind of open, right? Wearing the gold, welcoming the Tyrells to their court. She's wearing slashed velvet, which establishes their wealth and dominance over the court as well.
1: And the High Septon's crown is cascading rainbows, everything. It's really pimped out. It's very crystally. Jalabar Jo is in a cape of feathers Varys is out here in a lilac brocade and even moon boy and sir dantos have new motley on so truly we are balling out today
0: (laughs) lady tanda and her daughters are wearing turquoise silk which is pretty pricey and a ver dress ver trim dress sorry and i I have a photo in here in the notes that hopefully our patrons will see when they get uploaded but ver is Basically, generally, it's a dark brown or blue gray squirrel hair seen in like a patterned look. It's seen a lot as heraldic fur. It's patterned, right? Like, so you see this pattern on it that's in sigils. If you haven't ever, please look it up. It's interesting. So it's interesting to think every time you see someone's outfit lined with Vare, this will replace your image. It's just like a weird, almost cross-like pattern. I
1: don't like it. I'm looking at the picture that Chloe has put into our document, and it kind of just looks like... Ugly. It looks like little it literally looks like little squirrels just sewed together, which I know that is what it is, but sometimes when you see like fur things, there's not just like it doesn't look like yeah. a cape of dead animals, dead rodents, really.
0: Also, exactly, it's really showing lesser, right? Like there isn't really it's it, it it's kind of cheap looking it just looks tacky, not even cheap it looks tacky is the problem. Yeah. Lord Giles is coughing into a red handkerchief, more Lannister colors here, trimmed with golden lace. Joffrey, though, is totally bedazzled. He's wearing crimson samite, a black mantle with rubies, and a heavy golden crown. Of course, this is another gesture at how Joffrey's not a Baratheon, the overwhelming of the Lannister colors, and who the true power and wealth behind the throne is.
1: Sansa pushes to the front of the queue, just as Tywin Lannister makes his grand entrance. And boy, is it grand. It's not That one's not a metaphor. He rides his giant war horse down and through the sea of people. And he and his horse are super decked out because, you know, if we're going to deck out the fools, we're also going to pimp out the horses. It, this is your pimping your ride right here.
0: <laughs> MTV is going to pimp your horse.
1: <laughs> oh, my God. I would watch that. Tywin's got red steel gold inlays. He's got a roaring sunburst lion rondels. You name it, he got it. He has ruby eyed lions on the helm and this is a fucking fashion show right here. Everyone is in their finery, especially Tywin Lannister. And again, the horse has gilded armor and a shimmering crimson drape.
0: Yeah, Tywin's wear here kind of suggests we've won the battle, but not yet the war. And you know we're we're still ready to fight where cersei is totally calm casual here's my sexy golden red dress i'm the queen but tywin has bigger fish to fry so to speak tywin's warhorse shits right in front of the throne because you know how's that for a metaphor
1: yeah we could dig into it but i feel like everyone gets it all right you all understand <laughs> what this is
0: we've all read the books eliana joffrey hugs his grandpa he's taking care not to step in the shit he calls Tywin savior of the city for everyone to hear and makes a pretty big deal of asking his grandpa to assume the regency until Joffrey is of age. Tywin's armor gets removed by squires and Joffrey pins the golden hand chain to him. Tywin takes his place next to Cersei and the real show begins.
1: We have a line of heroes begging for credit uh, from the battle pull through. We got Mace Tyrell and his sons, Loras and Garland, who are all dressed in green and sable. Mace is chubby hot. He's described as fat, but still handsome.
0: (laughs) Joffrey fastens a golden rose chain with the Lannister lion in rubies against their necks, which this is like the time, he says, I will grant you three genie wishes. So while he's showing them and giving them such a gracious gift with rubies, which are expensive, it's also kind of, you know, implicating them. Hey, you're one of us now. Welcome to the team. So, you know, you know, this This is a double-sided gift. Sansa holds her breath and she's thinking the time has finally come.
1: It's here. And Sansa thinking internally the time has finally come, of course, cues the reader that, hey, things are happening. But it also colors both Sansa and the reader's interpretation of everything because Sansa and now we know that this is all a show. And so the language reflects all of this with wording like Joffrey made a show of looking surprised.
0: Loras asks for a Kingsguard position because, you know, we're conveniently missing a couple. Kingsguard are running off or dying by the handfuls these days, and it really stems from the end of Robert's Rebellion. With most of Ares' Kingsguard dying off, Robert had to replace his with a mediocre lineup, as we've sort of discussed in the past. Ever since then, it seems like it's been nothing but a revolving door in King's Landing.
1: They need an HR department at this stupid startup.
0: How about some benefits, maybe?
1: Yeah. A 401k? Oh, we could have gotten Sandra Clegane some mental health benefits. That would have yeah, been he helpful. Yeah, Yep.
0: That would have been very helpful. Yeah, maybe
1: Mandon Moore wouldn't have felt the need to do whatever he did, because... Yeah, not
0: to push my political policies, but, like, universal health care for all here in Westeros.
1: In Westeros. Mace asks for a spot on the small council, then Garland asks for Joffrey to wife up my sister, please. <laughs> and then Joffrey makes this, like, big display of, uh, I'm promised to another, alas, I would marry the beautiful maid. And Cersei then uses the setup to lay down the Sansa's a traitor. You should probably marry this chick anyway, because everyone here agrees.
0: The crowd starts to chant, no more traitor queens, give us Marjorie!" Which, of course, it's a small price to pay for Sansa to endure that when it comes to wanting to be free of him. Joffrey accepts Garland's wish and lifts him to his feet, kissing him on the cheek and proclaiming them brothers to be.
1: And there's a really interesting description here while Sansa is waiting for Joffrey to accept. Sansa's scared again because Joffrey could suddenly pull something out of left field like he did uh, before and go against the plan like he did when he sentenced Ned to death instead of being like, yeah, he's going to go to the wall. But then we see that Lord... But then we see this line where it says, Lord Tywin was looking at his grandson. Joff gave him a sullen glance, shifted his feet, and helped Sir Garland Tyrell to rise. So we see that Cersei's very unable to control Joffrey because as Joffrey says in his little shitty speech before he lops Ned's head off, he doesn't really do it. Joffrey thinks that women have weak hearts and he doesn't respect his mother. He doesn't respect Cersei. So we see here that Tywin without even really doing anything, can cow Joffrey, and we we begin to see that dynamic that's going to carry through the rest of both of them ruling here.
0: Yeah. And where most noble ladies would be ashamed, Sansa has a pretty different feeling right now. She feels freedom. Sansa felt curiously lightheaded. I am free. She could feel eyes upon her. I must not smile, she reminded herself. The queen had warned her, no matter what she felt inside, the face she showed the world must look distraught. I will not have my son humiliated, Cersei said. Do you hear me? Yes, but if I'm not to be queen, what will become of me? That will need to be determined for the moment you shall remain here at court as our ward. I want to go home. The queen was irritated by that. You should have learned by now, none of us get the things we want. I have, though, Sansa thought. I am free of Joffrey. I will not have to kiss him, nor give him my maidenhood, nor bear him children. Let Marjorie Tyrell have all that, that poor girl. This, of course, provides us the context for why Sansa knew what was coming, and once more gives us that Ned kind of writing where we're pushed right in the middle of that chapter and then we get it all unrolled for us.
1: Sansa then feigns sadness at being set aside in front of the entire court, because you gotta look sad when someone breaks up with you, and the parade of Blackwater heroes continues. Lord Redwine seeks an audience with his sons that Sansa used to call horror and slobber.
0: It's kind of interesting. I wonder if there are any blood and cheese nods to that. I always think it's just a weird pairing of names.
1: It's... A weird pairing of names, but I feel like George kind of likes doing that. Like, he's got left and right later on, and also... Yeah, Eric and Eric. Yeah. Hobber and Horace and Hobber just sound like they're really... They just sound... D and Tweedledee. Yeah, they just, like, sound so much more innocent, and, like, they just sound more innocent, alright, than blood and cheese. They're just like, oh, I don't know, we were stuck here, we didn't really want to be here, and oh my god, my poor brother's being forced to fight in this tourney, and then he just got injured. Like, it's really sad. <laughs>
0: I do think that there is something to that Tyrell causeway, like something especially with the tea party in the garden of Alice in Wonderland, right? Sansa and through the looking glass and Tweedledee and Tweedledum for left and right. And I think there's some sort of quality there being played with.
1: Yeah, it's something George is interested in. And of course, it's coming in through Sansa's own storyline, which might reflect Alice in Wonderland. Probably not. Everyone's just shitty.
0: Yeah, we definitely see him play with it in the House of the Undying chapter with Daenerys as well. Yeah. Um, A little bit in, oh, let's see. There's another place that we also see it reflected in, but I digress. Mathis Rowan comes on for the Blackwater Heroes. He's the man that is married to the woman Hoster Tully wanted Brynden to marry, Bethany Redwine. He is also who sent Darren the Singer to the Night's Watch. He found him a bed with his daughter, fun fact. He's currently commanding the siege at Storm's End in present A Song of Ice and Fire time.
1: And then we get Randall Tarly.
0: Boo! Boo!
1: Hiss.
0: Boo. Hiss. Boo! Boo! We see Heart'sbane for the first time too. It's in its scabbard, but jeweled and mighty looking.
1: Boo! Boo! <laughs> Boo. <laughs> then we also get Sir Kevin Lannister. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm alright. Nothing to say there. I, I, I mean, I, it's I, Kevin. Y'all know who Kevin is. He's in this.
0: Yeah. We'll get to Kevin.
1: Yeah, We have Sir Adam Marbrand.
0: Of course, the Lannisters have ties to House Marbrand. They are, as we know, sworn to the Westerlands. Their lands, Ashmark, are just northeast of Casterly Rock. Adam actually squired for House Lannister and became friends with Jaime in his childhood. The big ties, though, between House Marbrand and Lannisters that we can relate to are Jane Marbrand wedding Tytos, making him and her Jaime, Cersei, and Tyrion's grandfather and grandmother.
1: Then we have Lord Lyddon of Deep Den. We have Lord Crakehall, whose sigil is a boar, and their words are none so fierce. We got Lord Brax.
0: Unicorn house! <laughs> the unicorn's a horn veil! I just love that they are purple and silver unicorns. Same.
1: I'm wondering if that's going to mean anything later. Maybe, maybe not. We've seen griffins come to roost, you know?
0: Yeah, maybe Gaiskegosi. I don't know.
1: Yeah. Then came, comes some of the lower born heroes that rise to glory like Sir Philip Foote.
0: He has one eye after that. Um, they make him a lord and give him House Karen's lands, right? Night song. This guy goes on in life to testify against Tyrion. If we're going to do a where are they now? And of course, drumroll Eliana for your fave.
1: He's th- you like him too.
0: I do love him. Lothar Brune. Bless. Bless up fam. He cut his way through half a hundred Fossaway men in battle. Red Fossaway men. I think they
1: were Red Fossaway men because he was rescuing a green Fossilway, whom also bless. Yes. Bless everyone. Bless this house. The green Oh, just ways. Tiny Tim right now. And She's just, God bless us. Everyone oh, bless. No, just Lothar Brun and the green Fossilways. That's it. Yes.
0: We meet him once again in the Eyrie, under Littlefinger's service. He gets raised to a knight here and promised land when the war is done in Riverlands, which Paper Shield. We also get Willet, who's a man in Harry's Swift's service. He pulled Swift out from his dying horse, boo, and saved him from attackers. So he was so injured, he was brought in on a litter. For his service, he's granted nice weaponry, armor. His sons are sent to be squires and pages in service to House Lannister, They have the chance to advance to knighthood if they serve loyally. This is as much a gift as it is a threat. The Lannisters are afraid of any small power and uprising, and this is means to bind control over those they're gifting by putting them right in their own household. Not quite as classy as how the Targaryens did it, I guess. We could have added a few fancy marriages in there, but...
1: It reminds me of the origins of House Clegane. While they weren't necessarily taken into House Lannister, it, it's very much a similar... It looks like it's the start of a similar dynamic. Then we have Josmine Peckledon.
0: Heck. <laughs> downy-cheeked. I love it. He's, they say he's downy-cheeked. He's just so adorable. He's not more than 14, and he killed and wounded and captured men in the battle. They give him sword and armor and any war horse he desires, and knighthood when he's old enough.
1: Um, I kind of hope he shows up again in this story. By now, he's probably around 16, and I believe Jamie was knighted, right, at 16. Uh, granted, you know, that was very much exceptional. He was, like, one of the youngest, but it sounds to me like Josmine Peckledon has also done an exceptional job in an actual battle, and not just a tourney. Yeah.
0: I would love to see that. We get a lot of the people that served on the warships, the captains of the warships, the admirals. We get the warships of Wild Wind, Prince Aemon, and River Arrow, and officers from God Grace, Lance, Lady of Silk, and Ramshead. Sansa thinks, well, their only accomplishment was not getting blown up, but as she says, that's a huge feat because everybody <laughs> was getting blown up. Halline the Pyromancer and the Alchemist Guild Masters are also called up. They're raised to the style of Lord, but they're given no lands and no castles. Sansa thinks this makes them no true lords, of course. Merely a lord like Varys, in title.
1: Then we come across Lancel Lannister, and we're going to come back. I'm going to talk about Lancel again, as I always do. Who is awarded the lands of House Derry because Derry has no true-born heirs. So, keep that in mind. Uh, that were left after the, liver- liverlands, the Riverlands were torn apart. And Lancel's wounds in the battle were very awful, and he... Couldn't show up to accept his titles, and as we learn later, he kind of doesn't want them at all, whether he's dying or not. We also find out from Sansa that Tyrion Lannister is wounded, and he's said to be dying, which we think he might be dying too, and that he suffered a cut to the head. Well, at this point in the story, right, if you're reading it through the first time, obviously we all know he survives.
0: Yeah, we all know. We know he survives. (laughs) (laughs) Littlefinger, of course, is the biggest jackass of the hour. He shows up in fancy cloaks and robes and rich roses and plums, which let's take a fashion hour break. Fake royalty, much? If the rose is a lighter, com- if the rose is a lighter color complementary to the plum, I suspect it's a very pink rose color, indicating sweetness, and in Littlefinger's case, indicating the showing of overt sweetness. A deep plum color can only mean ambition and royalty, which. Makes all of this well in line for Littlefinger, especially because he's bringing his highest, sweetest courtesies to the king. He's barely lifting his little finger, and suddenly he has a kingdom. Sansa thinks he looks pleased as he kneels toward the throne. He did nothing special in battle, but he's being rewarded all the same. He was given Harrenhal and made Lord Paramount of the Trident, but if Fire and Blood and other Targaryen histories have shown us nothing, Heron the Red, Lucas Haraway, and Walton Towers have all shown us Heron Hall can't just be given, and it certainly can't just be kept. We know, of course, why Littlefinger got this, because he brought the Tyrells to the fray.
1: All of these are covered fairly quickly, and especially what you're saying, right? It's All this speaks to how much this thing that's going on in the throne room is just a performance it's just a show little thinker, like you said can't just be given the lordship like this it's an empty honor and the people who aren't here i'm gonna talk about the people who we just talked about who aren't in the room like they're from house lannister they are very much also lannisters and they were the ones who were actually out there holding this goddamn city for all these other people right and they're not being showered with honors in front of everyone like they're just like oh yeah Tyrion Lannister he might be dying uh Lancel i guess gets some stuff but he's not able to make it and the people who get all the attention showered upon them right now are late lord tywin and mace and garland who was They kind of won because he was pretending to be Renly. I mean, sure, they also brought a whole bunch of, like, troops and men, but also because they were like, oh, look, it's Renly, it's Renly, it's Renly. And the entire ceremony is just all this pomp and performance, and the real heroes of the Blackwater, from the perspective of the readers, because we actually, like, read this thing and have the other POVs, are the ones who said that the king, like, Lancel's like, the king needs to be out there. I was out there. Like, he's gotta be fighting alongside his men, and... He and Tyrion were out there. They risked life and limb in order to (coughs) hold King's Landing. And they're not here where the quote unquote heroes are being honored. They'll just be insulted and mocked later.
0: Yeah, they're playing at war. The Lannisters are playing at war overall, right? Like this is they're putting on their dog and pony show and they're just playing games. At the end of the night, over 600 new knights are made. The knights are made to hold overnight vigil in the Sept and walk across the city barefoot. Like, kind of like a a knight hazing, almost. Some of them are said to have bloody feet by the end, which, like, I get it. I understand. They need knights who want to serve, and this weeds out some weaker links. But it's crazy to think that the knights think this is an honor and their only way to rise up. Because why would you bleed for this community that isn't even what it promises to be, right? There are no true knights. Mm -hmm. This is... Yeah, it's a good job, but at what cost?
1: Yeah. Your feet. She said. Your feet, apparently. Apparently. Maybe people's feet are, like, better back. Maybe they had, like, hobbit feet. You know, it's all full of calluses and everyone's... So only three Kingsguard are on hand, and it takes a while for them to knight everyone. Uh, Mandon Moore died on the Blackwater, as we know, and Sandor has disappeared, and Ari's Okard is down in Dorne with Marcella, and Sansa, of course, knows what happened with Sandor, we know what happened to Mandon Moore because of Tyrion's POVs.
0: Jamie is, of course, Rob's captive, which leaves us with Balin Swan, Marin Trant, and Osmond Kettleblatt.
1: The crowd and Joffrey grow bored during the ceremony, but the duty remains to be done, In come the captives. There's Lord Celtigar, the Red Crab. There's Sir Bonifer the Good. I love the name Bonifer. I don't even like, get it, I, but I just want to say that I like this name.
0: Well I like the Bonifer with Rayla too, you know. Yeah.
1: It's a f- Sir Bonifer Hastings. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Such a it's like Jennifer, but Bonifer. Anyways. <laughs> that's how I think about that name. Lord Estermont and Lord Varner, whose knee is shattered. We got Red Ronnet of Griffin Roos, who's gonna come back in this he's gonna come back in the story.
0: Boo!
1: <laughs> Boo. Or he didn't or maybe he's not really selling them out. Who knows?
0: Who knows? Who knows? We got Sir Dermot of the Rainwood. Lord Willem and his sons, Joshua and Elias. Sir John Fosway, Sir Timon, the Scrapesword. <laughs> Lorraine, Bastard of Driftmark. Look how far this motherfucker came. Lord Studman called Penny Lover.
1: And hundreds of others.
0: Joffrey makes a show of it. If they were loyal to Stannis, they had to work for it. But if they had switched sides during the battle, they only had to swear fealty to his grace. People speak out for Stannis, saying this is not over for the pretender boy king. He has Sir Ilan take a man's head, but another king's man speaks out. Stannis is the true king. A monster sits the Iron Throne, an abomination born of incest. Joffrey is the black worm eating the heart of the realm. Darkness was his father and death his mother. Destroy him before he corrupts you all. Destroy them all, queen whore and king worm. Vile dwarf and whispering spider. The false flowers. Save yourselves. The scouring fire will come. King Stannis will return.
1: This guy's so dramatic. This guy's so extra. Like, imagine being this extra in the throne I don't room.
0: even think I was extra enough for this, I n- honestly. I know.
1: <laughs> Gotta wail more. The language, though, part of what makes him sound so extra is this language. But it really stands out to me. Like, the language this character uses is similar to... The way that a lot of prophecies seem to be worded, like they use all these epithets to describe people, for example, like darkness was his father, death his mother, and things like vile dwarf, black worm, and interestingly, we do see Cersei described as death or a stranger perhaps The Stranger, a few times throughout the series, like when Maggie the Frog calls Cersei... She calls Cersei Death, right, to Melara Heatherspoon says, your death is here with us, she's near. Um, but this, like, Queen Whore and King Worm, Vile Dwarf and Whispering Spider, the False Flowers, it reminds me of how Quaithe w- warns Daenerys. Soon comes the Pale Marin after her, the others Kraken and Dark Flame, Lion and Griffin, the Sun's Sun and the Mummer's Dragon. It's similar language, and it makes it feel prophetic i don't know that it necessarily is um maybe this person saw something uh but we do at least know that there is truth in what they're saying stannis is the true king here and not joffrey who is in fact an abomination born out of incest not because he's born out of incest he's an abomination for other reasons because bless our child Marcella and tommen even though he doesn't like beats whatever and we'll keep him yeah we'll keep him All of this is revelatory, but this man feels to me like the way that he's out here in this throne room, like a scorned prophet who's just shattering the veneer of this royal falsehood.
0: Yeah. Joffrey, of course, then throws a huge tantrum. He commands them to kill this guy. And as he's freaking out, he slices his arm open on the Iron Throne. The king begins wailing for his mother. Just think about that. The king starts to wail Mm -hmm. for his mother. The room is quiet and everyone is watching and the man on the floor takes this moment to grasp a gold cloak spear, fighting for it and getting himself back up and crying that the throne denies Joffrey. I just kind of wish that Joffrey would have maegor himself here, right? Yeah. Like I just read Sons of the Dragon again and I'm just like, man, I wish he would have just bleh, oops. Oh, well. Oh, well. It could have happened. We got a good death out of him. Yeah. I mean, we obviously do have so many Magor parallels. We don't have to point it out. Everybody can grab them. But, you know, even the first time Magor got a sword, he was said to, you know, cut out a cat. So just bloop, bloop, bloop.
1: Yeah, it's definitely something that George is drawing connections between. Yeah. But then as soon as Joffrey's gone, because, you know, he can't stay on the battlefield, he can't do anything in the throne room, like, he can't do anything. The room comes back into motion, the gold cloaks drag the dead Stannis supporter out of the room, which leaves a trail of blood on the white stone, which again creates that image like the blood on the mailed fist of uh, the white glove of blood and death defiling something pure.
0: Everyone else begins to talk and whisper. Ailish kind of does this villain beard stroke while Varys whispers to him, which, kind of interesting, we don't see a lot of their interactions in A Clash of Kings besides... A small council with Tyrion. It makes me wonder what they were whispering about.
1: Talking about how much this cleaning bill is going to cost. That's what varies is asking. He's like, "Hey, do we do we have it in our budget right now to like clean all this up?" They only come
0: on Thursday mornings, right? Yeah. They're
1: like, "Can you can you pay a little extra for them to come like tonight? We've got an emergency cleaning."
0: Yeah, we're supposed to have a ball this week, so
1: <laughs> Sansa wonders if they're going <coughs> to dismiss the court because of this kerfuffle. But Stannis, not Stannis, my God. Tywin continues to hold court, and as he does this, what he does is he like moves very calmly. He's just like gesturing with like his fingers, like we good. And then, as opposed to Joffrey's wild flailing that got him injured, he Tywin silently just sits on the third step of the throne. He's not in the seat, but it's clear who's the king here and who's acting and has the power. And it's just like Ares II, all come again.
0: Yeah, Tywin is truly being the Hand of the King all over again, just like during uh, Before Robert's Rebellion there. The session goes on until the night draws and Sansa leaves the gallery. She is exhausted. She wondered how badly Joffrey had cut himself. They say the Iron Throne can be perilous cruel to those who are not meant to sit it. Again, very Magor vibes. Sansa returns to her chambers. She's so happy Joffrey set her aside, she can't even right now she could she could kiss her serving girl she eats her food and she's like this even tastes good
1: hell yeah (laughs) i'm sure it tasted good the whole time yeah probably what i like about this scene i don't know if you know what i'm talking about like it feels like an inversion of these tropes and i'm sure george doesn't watch the same stupid rom-coms that i do right but It's probably not even doing that, but it feels to me like, you know, Sansa's returning to her chambers. She runs to the bed. She squeals with joy into her pillow and she's like, everything's great. And I kind of associate that scene of a teenage girl squealing with delight when she runs back into her room with something like, something went really well with her crush. But here it's like flipped on its head a little because she's super giddy because like, finally Joffrey's like broken up with me. We're free. I don't know if you know the scene I'm talking about.
0: I do. No, I do. And I think it's totally like, of course he knows that, because think about it. uh, it, It starts off with that. It starts off with Sansa being like that, right? It starts off with her all dreamy idol. Oh, I hope he likes me. Oh, today went so well. He was such a gentleman. He was so courteous today at the feast. She thinks things like that throughout all of A Game of Thrones until Ned's head topples down those steps. And now it's, oh, my God. I'm done. I don't have to be with him.
1: That's great.
0: She slips into a cloak and she leaves for the godswood when darkness falls. Osmond Kettleblack guards the drawbridge and Sansa gets past him. Dantos greets her, but she comments he looks sad and she asks why. Sansa was out here jumping for joy. She's like, yes, leave me alone. Let me eat a fucking lemon cake. She's like, how are you not happy right now? I'm happy. How are how are you not happy, Dantos? Like, you were there. You heard it. You heard it. But, of course, Dantos says, Cersei will never let you go. You are too valuable of a hostage to her, Sansa. And Joffrey will still have his way with her. And now she'll have bastards instead of princes and princesses.
1: And, of course, Sansa is shocked at all of this. She didn't think about any of this. Like, I didn't sign up for this shit. She really didn't. Not, not at no. that point. Um, and all of these truths, these harsh truths that Dantos is talking about, it's a perfect place, like where all of this is happening, and like for it to end this chapter for Sansa, because these truths are coming out because of this tension in this chapter created by that difference between the public and the private, the open um, things that are happening in the open, and inside and the spectacle versus just like reality and the throne room right that's an enclosed space it becomes a stage where people are just acting out chivalry and courtesy while again like the real heroes of the blackwater are not really tywin lannister they're they're not even in the room it's lancel and Tyrion, and injury i guess it wasn't pretty except they brought in i guess that one kid on a stretcher so that was nice but you have the niceties and underneath it all it's just like horseshit which thank you to taiwan's horse for telling us this with your butt and out here though we're underneath this open sky like the like the dothraki things of importance happen in the open and no one's really watching them except for i don't know maybe the old gods from the trees but like we don't know. probably and in this private moment that's happening outside. We see all these ugly truths come out from Dantos of like, oh my god, of course you have to be stuck here. And we're getting a peek at the real Game of Thrones. We have an idea of like what Littlefinger is playing at, at the schemes and the truths that like, Joffrey may say one thing in public to save face, but he's going to keep being a monster in private.
0: Their heart tree in the Red Keep is the oak tree with the smokeberry very vine. so it is definitely definitely watching which i think that's really interesting because there's dragon's breath growing right below the heart tree like oh, that's right there that's the yeah I isn't like that, that interesting i've never isn't i've that really cool? never
1: noticed that until this moment you're always teaching me so yeah. much you teach me so much oh. guys right. we had a great time hanging out together
0: i miss you, I miss you we're going to do it soon don't worry Okay. Uh, also, sidebar, if you guys haven't gotten do check out our Twitter. There's a great Eliana and Chloe content on our Twitter. It's a fan favorite, apparently. <laughs> uh, Where are we going, Eliana? Oh,
1: know, The alley.
0: The darkness? The darkness? Starting with
1: the alley, yes. The darkness.
0: Danto says that a day has been chosen to spirit Sansa away, the night of Joffrey's wedding to Lady Marjorie. The wedding still isn't for a moon's turn. He gives her something to wear at the wedding, a headpiece that we know is magic. It's fine-spun silver with small, dark gems from Ashai, dark amethysts, very rare, across it. Sansa thinks it's a ship she needs, not a hairnet, which to me, that's such a Daenerys line from Karth, right, just two chapters ago, so I'm sure we're meant to see this parallel. Mm
1: -hmm. Girls just want to go home.
0: Girls just want to go home.
1: (laughs) Girls just, yeah, anyways santa thanks santa she tells him it's lovely and dantus is like but it's more than that lovelier than (laughs) you know okay hold on this is the last line of the chapter i'm gonna start over and actually make it dramatic for all of you this is our performance lovelier than you know sweet child it's magic you see it's justice you hold it's vengeance for your father Danto's being close and kissed her again. Don't do that. It's home.
0: <laughs> don't do that. Leave her alone. This, get a job. This is like this, get a new this job. This is the
1: second time, I think, at the very least, he's kissed her in this chapter. Because earlier he gives her, like, a sloppy kiss on the ear. And it's like, ugh. Don't do that.
0: Oh, Leave her ear alone. <laughs> gross. Poor Sansa's never going to want to have sex. Like, you realize that, right? Like. Yeah. She's not even going to want it. Like, would you? I wouldn't. I'd be like, get the fuck away from me. All these people is gross.
1: Just stay away from her. This ending, though, I tried to play it straight for a minute. Then we got to the part where he kissed her again. And I was like, I can't. I can't. Sorry, everyone. But if you just focus on the other parts, like the justice you hold, vengeance for your father, it's home. This is a very classic way of George ending character POVs, especially at the close of a book or if it's like the last POV of that book. You can see how this construction compares, in my opinion, with like Littlefinger's last words to Sansa in A Feast for Crows. It's got a very similar vibe. And of course, we know now that, you know, Littlefinger says to Sansa, why every knight in the Vale will pledge his sword to win you back your birthright. So those are your gifts from me, my sweet Sansa, Harry the eerie and winterfell that's worth another kiss now they're just like, what what is this wait a second it's just creepy old just, men at the
0: end of sansa's it's chapters just
1: creepy old men and but the, trying to kiss her and give her stuff the idea of like giving us giving her a thing like giving her this this very big gift that promises home promises justice and then it also compares with Arien's uh ending uh for the chapters in feast where doran who is thankfully not a creepy old man he says vengeance his voice was soft as if he were afraid that someone might be listening justice prince doran pressed the onyx dragon into her palm with his swollen gouty fingers and whispered fire and blood so again we get that idea of those promises of vengeance and justice and of course the martels but They know that what they want is a blood price. And we can see that thematically a little bit with Sansa's hairnet, especially with all that hindsight that the magic that they hold, it's (coughs) death, it's poison, ties back with the prologue. And it's more
0: than just the magic they hold being death. The bigger picture comes to characters at the end of the book and their last chapters being handed the tools to succeed and accelerate through the next point of their plot. Sansa is given this hairnet as a means of escape, But it also brings her to fall into the clutches of Littlefinger, her name written in King's Blood and coined for Regicide. But since this is a reread, we all know the Ghost of High Heart gives a prophecy in Arya 8, A Storm of Swords. I dreamt of a maid at a feast with purple serpents in her hair, venom dripping from their fangs. And later, I dreamt that maid again slaying a savage giant in a castle built of snow. This hairnet may be a one-use item, but the end of Sansa's chapters in A Feast for Crow comes the product of that weapon. Sansa gets a chance at her own agency. We open the Winds of Winter to her planning attorney in the Vale, and that agency is, one way or another, going to lead to her escape, just like the hairnet doomed her to Littlefinger, but still doomed her to escape by being in the place that holds connection not just her father, but also her mother's sister. Sansa's reluctantly learning tools to survive from Cersei in King's Landing, just like she learned from Sandor throughout Clash, and just before one mentor goes up in flames, she ends up hopping right to the next. This chapter and ending is important because it opens up the field for the roses to overgrow their way into King's Landing and pushes Sansa to be in their path and eventually into Littlefingers.
1: And so, of course, this is the last chapter of Sansa in A Clash of Kings and A Clash of Kings it's of course a continuation of Sansa's arc it's that aftermath of what happens once you learn that life is not a song you're not automatically like super wise it's a process of learning and unlearning all these different ideas now that Ned's lost his head that's the beginning of Sansa's enrollment into the school of hard knocks I'm really proud of this thing you guys and for her first year of course she's learning from Cersei about how unfair everything is like a Clash of Kings is very much an exploration of, I think, gender and what's expected of women and being a queen between Sansa and Cersei, and that you don't have to play it one way And when Sansa starts having her own tools and knows what to do. But also, you know, Cersei's kind of right. Nobody gets what they want. And Cersei is the Rolling Stones.
0: But if you try sometimes, you might find
1: the queen in the north.
0: Uh Uh (laughs) the queen in the know and I think on top of Cersei telling Sansa you can't always get what you want Sansa does think, you know, if you try sometimes (laughs) you might find you get what you need a hair Um, no, Sansa still has such a long way to go even in Storm but I think Clash is that big kind of like you said, it's that foray into crossing your fingers and trying to learn how the world actually works after you have the wool pulled off of your eyes, right? Like, mm-hmm. Sansa spent 11, 12 years thinking the world worked one way, and then she spent all of Clash learning the world doesn't work that way. So now A Storm of Swords is her trying to find a way for that world to be better and that world to get different for her character. And A Feast for Crows is her getting used to figuring that out.
1: hmm And so... Next episode, we're going to come back and we're going to do a quick intro, right, of Storm of Swords and Sansa's storyline and that.
0: Yeah, some of the players in that, some of the overall themes, some of what we're going to be looking out for as we read that book. There's a lot. There's a lot to come. I'm really excited to get into Storm of Swords. We have some exciting guests or one or two guests that might join us while we read that book. Uh, we will start right back up next week. Thank you so much, patrons, for being patient this week with the holiday and not getting this episode until today, Friday.
1: Yep. And along with your patience, you will have two episodes next week. You're going to get, again, that Dance of the Dragons episode, which is is now going to be bolstered with of course what we got in those novellas but now it's going to have a lot of that information that we have from fire and blood so very excited about yeah. that we wanted to do a deeper dive into this and we were just like we got a week
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's very ambitious but i think we're gonna do great hey yeah if you're not a patron of ours make sure you check it out patreon.com Any patrons that are $5 and up tiers will get a shot at listening to that episode. Uh, If not, hey, we don't really care. We're going to do these episodes all the time for you guys, no matter what. You'll get your weekly episode from us on the feed. You'll get that on Podbeam, on Google Play, on iTunes, on Spotify, on Stitcher, and even on
1: Acast. And of course, you can always find us on social media and other things like for example you can find us on twitter as girls gone canon you can send us emails at girls canon at gmail.com leave us uh comments and stuff on like itunes and on podbean where apparently people also like say things so there are many ways for you to reach out and talk to us maybe even in person at another one of these things like at- yeah
0: we would love to do another event maybe there will be a a Winds of winter announcement
1: oh wow this coming winter I know. tomorrow.
0: Yeah, we actually all received our copies at the Fire and Blood event. So we'll have some analysis for you next week on those.
1: On the winds of winter, yep.
0: Yeah. Well, HBO sent me mine months ago, but oh, of course. With my paychecks.
1: <laughs> yeah, we we HBO shills.
0: Oh my god. You guys, I have been Chloe, one of your hosts. As always, find me on the internet as at Lies and Arbor on Twitter and on Tumblr.
1: And I have been Eliana, another one of your hosts, also known as Glass Table Girl. I hope you guys had a great holiday.
0: Yeah, happy Thanksgiving if you're listening and you celebrate from us to you. We are absolutely grateful for you guys, listeners. So thank you for tuning in.